you know you're doing something right when your favorite episodes are also everyone else's favorite episodes. In case you missed it last week, I am technically on a season break right now from the podcast. So instead of launching new episodes, we're finishing out 2023 with the best of episodes from this last year, according to your download numbers. And coming in at number one this year was my chat with Rebecca Graves-Prowse of Gravesco. It's a story of how you can grow a business from solo maker to team leader, but also how you can have decades of experience in a completely different field and then make a total change. Frankly, it's a no-holds-bar chat on the reality of business as a maker, so it should really come as no surprise to me that it's the number one episode from the year since it's essentially the embodiment of our very tagline for this show, what it's really like to make a living from the things we make. But really quickly, before we get into all of that, I want to point out us Rebecca's, both myself as well as Graves, we didn't accomplish the things we have in our small businesses because of a secret superpower bestowed upon us from our shared first names. Although that would be pretty cool. We should probably make capes. Rebecca, if you're listening, FYI, we're going to make capes. Anyway, we've accomplished these things because we have put in clear systems into place to actually get the darn things done. Whether that's organizational systems or accountability groups, I can promise you that neither one of us has grown the teams we've built and or then intentionally chosen to change those business models in pretty huge ways all while needing to actually keep the businesses afloat in order to pay the bills, remember? None of that stuff happened because we just bought the right $100 planner. In fact, I know that so well because I have a stack of annoyingly expensive, as well as the cheap ones, planners and journals and notebooks that I thought would solve all of these problems if I just followed the things. Some I started, some I never even opened to embarrassingly admit to all of you. However, what did change everything for me was a weekly and a quarterly system that I learned from an accountability group that allowed me to keep track of the health of my business in very real time, as well as break down those huge goals into manageable monthly and weekly steps. Honestly, the Maker's Photography Styling System, the six-week photo course that many of you know me for, that literally would not exist if it wasn't for this accountability system. And this very system is what we are kickstarting the new year with inside of the community. I'll be sharing the whole thing, starting off with the annual planning portion, obviously, and of course, we will also be kindly and gently holding each other accountable to those goals that we've set for ourselves inside of this system. Myself included, I get held accountable by our community members. We're going to be doing that throughout the whole year. Now, you can come join just for the kickoff challenge in January if you want. 
But fair warning, you might join us and find that you love the community as much as I do and want to stick around for a little longer. The point is, memberships are flexible like that, but particularly right now, it's also cheaper than it's ever going to be ever again. Our membership rates are going up in February. So if you've been thinking about testing out the community after hearing so much about it over this past year, or if you are tired of getting to the end of the year with the projects you've dreamed about still not being finished, and you want to finally break out of that cycle, now is the time. You can lock in our $27 a month rate for however long you are a member, even after the price increases in February, if you join before February. As always, you can learn more at makersplaybook.com community. All right, enough of the goal-setting pitches. Let's dig into this year's number one episode from the podcast and listen back again to my conversation with Rebecca Graves Prouse. And a friendly reminder, this is a replay, so the dates and time-sensitive stuff that you might hear in this episode, they're clearly not applicable. We are kicking off our third year here on the podcast with a conversation that I can only describe as my fairy pot mother, or hopefully soon-to-be biz bestie, and ironically, same first name, it's Rebecca Graves Prouse. And since you won't be able to see us, obviously, in this conversation, I feel like I should try to tell you just how many times I was silently clapping in the background and vehemently nodding along to what she was saying. It's rare that I find another creative who looks at spreadsheets as something exciting to behold and actually inform creative decisions. So, yeah, we nerd out just a little bit. But also, Rebecca sheds a lot of light on the decades of experience she had before she magically, using air quotes over here, created an overnight success. That was air quotes again, if you couldn't tell by my voice. For all of you out there listening who have been thinking, it's too late for me to make a career move. I'm too far into this corporate job with the 401ks and the healthcare and all of those perks. Well, this episode is for you, my friends. But first, real quick, I am still equally excited to say a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Kara, content creator and Facebook wrangler for Amico Brent, bringing you ideas and support for your creative adventures every day. This week's episode is brought to you by Amico Brent. Find your favorite Amico glaze at your local distributor. Happy glazing. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Maker's Playbook, the show where we talk all about what it's really like to make a living from the things you make. I'm your host, seasoned entrepreneur of now 13 years, Rebecca Ikes Kara. This is only going to sound a little bit strange when I say, hey, Rebecca, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. I am actually speaking to another person, just for anyone who's worried I've completely lost my mind. <laughs> 
How would you introduce yourself to the people listening? Wow. Sorry, big question. Hey, you're starting off with the hard-hitting questions. <laughs> so I am a potter turned owner of a production pottery studio, and we make handmade goods that are classically designed that I just want people to be able to live with for years to come. Nothing makes me happier than when somebody posts on social media or shoots me a message and says, your mug is the favorite one that I reach for every morning. Like that's life. Yes. I always laugh at how many times you're literally hand washing the mug because it was in the dishwasher and it's dirty from the day before, but you want to use it again. Mm -hmm. And there's 20 other mugs yeah. in the cabinet. And you're like, maybe we should just, we need to just donate the other ones <laughs> and move on. Yeah. It's like an, if you know, you know, if you have a favorite mug, you know what it's like. And if you don't, like people look at me like, what are you talking about? I have four mugs, whatever. I'm like, oh, you, oh, that's sad. You've not experienced favorite mug, right? <laughs> Let me give you the anxiety of your mug being dirty in the dishwasher in the morning. <laughs> or like who used it? I knew this was clean. Why are you using my mug? <laughs> For those with other humans in the house. And so that, just to to clarify for everybody listening, that production company is Graves Co., which if people listen to Wheel Talk, I think Becca is off and on kind of a part of the team. How big is your team now? How many people are we talking about? Right now we're at 10 and it has kind of fluctuated up and down. Earlier this year, I think we had 14 mm -hmm. and we're down to 10 kind of ebbs and flows with the business. Not everyone is full time because they have their own studio practices. Mm -hmm. And like earlier this year, Becca had been doing production for me for the last year. And it was with the intent that she'd be here for a year-ish mm -hmm. while she was figuring out what she wanted to do next. So she has figured that out and she's off and doing her own thing now and just kind of pops in and has lunch with the team. That's awesome. That sort of thing. That's so right. Yeah. So we're about 10 right now. That was one of the most enjoyable parts for me. And we can dig into what it's like to grow a team and to manage people and all of the pros and cons of that. But one of the best parts was being able to be a resource to people to say, hey, maybe it's not enough work to be full time and provide your whole life, but maybe I can provide a little bit of sustainability or continuity or just like, you know, you're going to have groceries covered and that's one less worry. And that, right. at least for my brain, it completely changed my ability to talk about pricing with customers because instead of me yes. just talking about me, I was like, oh, no, no, no. We need to charge this much because I'm providing other people's livelihoods. And now I kind of went like mama bear on everything, which was way easier for me than like, well, I'm personally worth this much. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And when I started out, I was working in a studio with a couple of other potters, but we were independently doing our own things. And then I started my own studio working solo and I got sick. I had not intended to build a team. The reason that I decided to build a team was because I went three months where I could barely work more than two consecutive hours because of this illness that I had gotten. It was just a virus, but it attacked my lungs and I just couldn't function. So I realized at that point, I came from a corporate background running a team of a thousand plus people. Running a team isn't necessarily hard for me so much as doing everything completely myself and being fully responsible for it and being able to take time off. Because as you know, in the pottery world, time off isn't a thing because something is at some stage. To take a week off, you really have to take two weeks off and then it takes a week to get back into the production schedule. So that was kind of where I started the idea of maybe we need to be a production studio and I shouldn't be hand carving every piece until I can't feel my fingers anymore and totally revamped the whole company and here we are. But the thing I love 
is when I was working in the other studio, everybody else I worked with had day jobs and they would come in and, you know, kill themselves in their evenings to try and build their pottery business. I would much rather have people have their day job be pottery so that they're in their field and they're building their skills. So now after making a hundred pots for us, they go, they maybe only need to make 10 or 15 for themselves, but it's effortless because they've got that muscle memory. Well, and also my assumption is like if they are passionate about those hand carved pieces that take hours to make, they can keep doing that, but in a reasonable quantity rather than trying to do production on hand carved mugs, you know, something like that. Yeah, there were weeks I was doing like 400 mugs hand carved. So I was throwing, handling, carving, glazing the whole nine and it was absolutely bonkers. Oh my gosh. Okay, before... We talk about the realities of production because I can very quickly go down that route. Walk us back a little bit historically in terms of, because you mentioned corporate job and, you know, I always think the context of background, a lot of us miss what that looks like on Instagram when it's just like, oh, you're crushing it. And it's like, well, you actually had this really helpful, informative experience that was completely different, you know, in a completely different sphere. Absolutely. So when I was in high school, I started working in retail for my part-time, you know, after-school job. And I discovered working at this department store that I really wanted to get into display or graphic design. Those were the two things that just kept calling me. So I went to college for a whopping year at Monroe County Community College because I wasn't allowed to go away to school because I wasn't 18 yet. My parents were sure that I would be raped and dead and left in a street in New York City or Cleveland or wherever I <laughs> or was. Or Cleveland. Thinking. I mean, tomato, tomato. Or Cleveland, you know, <laughs> New York, Cleveland, whatever, going to end up dead. <laughs> so while I was taking every art class offered and had amazing art teachers, I took everything except ceramics. Did not touch the clay. I was like, ew, dirty. No, <laughs> not even interested. Ironically, here we are 30 years later. So I was doing this retail work and at 19, I got offered the job I wanted doing visual merchandising. So I dropped out of school because I'm like, I can have $100,000 in debt to do the $15 an hour job or I could just go do the job. And that ended up by the time I was 23, I was a district manager and then a regional director for Elder Bremen department stores doing merchandising. So I ended up when I left the company just before I turned 40, I had 31 stores It was a $165 million annual sales region. I was doing new store openings and remodels and managing the teams for that and all of the merchandising and display for that and helping with planning out holiday setups and all of that stuff. So 100% everything from that background has supported and helped me get to this point. Like numbers are not a scary thing to me. I'm not afraid to look at a spreadsheet. I don't feel like that is lacking in creativity to me. My favorite thing when I was in the corporate retail job was sitting in my office in Toledo, Ohio, and I'd look at spreadsheets of my stores. And I knew which ones had implemented the floor changes and which ones hadn't. Because it's like, oh, well, Kohler, Wisconsin is trending 30% lower in this one department than everyone else in the region. So did you guys do the floor moves? Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do the floor moves. Let's do, there's a reason for this. And I started to be able to correlate those numbers to a visual experience and also start to take that visual experience and create a sense of immersive experience when you walked in the store. Because like, I know when you walk in the door, you're going to look to the right. I know that anything that's at eye level is going to perform better than below or above. I know that having chunks of things that are similar create focal spots for the eye to focus on. And if you leave a little space around it, 
people are like, oh, I should be looking at that thing. So all of that helped me in designing my product line, being able to see what people were picking up and touching and what the reactions were like in those stores. And then also seeing how I could affect a customer experience. So it took me a few years to translate that to the modern online world. But here we are. Sure, sure. And none of this would happen without having had that experience for 20 plus years. I love, I feel like the train is like an exclamation point at the end of that statement. <laughs> like, yes, yes. Yeah. We call him Charlie. I love it. He's also on the other side of town, literally 12 feet from the wall of our studio. Oh gosh. So Chris gets that tree, the train at his back all day long while he's packing boxes. This is a complete aside, but when I very first moved to Chicago, my dorm room at DePaul was on the second floor next to, like literally as physically close as you could get to the train without being on the train. When we would open our windows, we could hear the conversations people had on the platform. So, yep, I get it. At least, though, it's on a schedule, so it kind of becomes like white noise, you know, as opposed to living a block away from a bar and then the human noise is just totally unpredictable. But I digress. Yeah, this one's not predictable nah. at all. Well, anyway, you are speaking all of my love languages right now. I feel like I'm just like, oh my gosh, we're going to be best friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when somebody else gets, gets as excited about this stuff as I do. It's the stuff for me that like... When I talk to other creatives, I feel like the stuff coming out of my mouth, they're looking at me like I have snakes coming out of my hair. Whereas when somebody else starts saying it, I'm like, yes, yes, this is, yes. Come on, people. <laughs> yeah. I'm used to like the glazed over. Uh -huh. Okay, whatever. <laughs> oh God, she's talking about spreadsheets again. <laughs> I love it. So how long, because you mentioned, and also now I'm very confused about timeline and age, because I'm like, you couldn't possibly have still been working your corporate job at 40 before doing this because you're like, what, 42? I'm confused. I'm 50. I just turned 50. I could kick and I could stretch. And if you're 50, you know that reference. Love it. Well, may I age as well as you? Please and thank you. And I'm going to need your skin. <laughs> I'm going to need your skin care regimen after this call. But it's been simple. <laughs> that also might be a connective tissue disorder. Not sure. <laughs> We're still working that out. <laughs> When they exactly. What else? So I was 16 when I started in retail. Well, 15, I lied about my age on my application to get a job. I also had a pink ID at one point so I could vote. But that. I didn't vote because then I was afraid. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Not to get booze, just to vote. This makes... <laughs> I love this so much. Oh my God. So I ended up, I think I was at Elder Beerman until I was 38. And then I did, I had a gallery and store. And while I was doing that and kind of figuring out what it meant to be an artist for me, mm -hmm and pursuing all of the not clay things, I was doing a lot of freelance work. So, you know, I set up a boutique in Kansas City with a friend. I did store setup and all of the visual merchandising standards for a home goods store. And we did a half dozen stores all over the country. So I was still in it and doing that job, just not getting as regular of a paycheck doing it while I was doing these other things, which was really glorious for a while until I figured out what I wanted to do. And then I had kind of simultaneous with that freelancing, I had a gig doing knitting patterns for a yarn company. I was in a, my friend's yarn shop and I worked there part-time and she was having a dispute with a vendor and she's like, well, I need to go check the back room and hands me the phone. I'm like, hi. <laughs> Isn't 
there a hold button for that? Hi, I'm Rebecca. Right. You, are, you don't have. You are on hold. I'm going to sing to you. Right. So this poor guy is like nervous and trying to fill the minutes with words, and mentions offhand that he's looking for somebody to design knitting patterns for their yarn company. And I'm like, oh well, I design stuff all the time. I'd be happy to write some knitting patterns. This turns into, I'm looking for somebody to design a book of knitting patterns. I'm like, sure, I can do that. I have never freaking done this in I was my like, do life. you knit? I know we can do it. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've knitted and crocheted since I was a okay, kid. Okay, that's helpful. But he's like, I've done patterns for like one size fits all sort of things. Not sizing, garment sizing. But I know enough about garment sizing and I can figure this out. So it turns into, I designed two knitting pattern books for this guy and this product line and his trade show booth and all these crazy things and it turns into i'm art directing the project and then i'm like i need buttons for these sweaters because i can't find anything that's cool enough for the knitting world and this was like as the knitting world was kind of tipping from grannies to all the cool kids we were right at that so it's like we're out on the train tracks doing a photo shoot with this high-end fashion photographer and we did shit nobody in the knitting world had ever seen. Can't find buttons. I'm like, this is not normal button territory. Talked to a friend who's a ceramics prof, asked him to have a student make them and he said, babe, come make the damn buttons yourself. <laughs> They're buttons. And that started the snowball. <laughs> so wait, is that the first time you touched clay then? Yeah. Yes. And you're how old at this point? Like how many years? 38. Okay, so it's like 31 and 39? 12 years ago, roughly. Yeah, roughly 12 years ago. I'm like, I'm going to make a thousand tiny buttons. Everybody's going to want these buttons. I'm not going to hyper fixate on making buttons at all. <laughs> like, you need to come help me load the kiln because I am not loading that shit in the kiln. I had no idea. Like, I'm just like, oh, you just, you know, you just dump them in there, right? <laughs> I was my own worst nightmare. <laughs> I didn't even know it. So that's kind of where this whole damn thing started. With buttons. With buttons. Amazing. Because I'm like, yeah, I can make some sweaters. Oh my God. I love this so much. I love it so much. Here I was thinking like, oh, you went to, you know, like clearly this is such a big vision. Now that you say you have a background in graphic design, which that's actually what my degree is in, so much makes sense just from the social media presence and all this type of stuff. But I'm thinking like, oh... You have traditional training in ceramics and you started out on your own and realized it sucks and then you grew a company. And I'm like, nope, none of this. Like, this is why I started this podcast because so much of what we can make assumptions about people's stories and how they got to right. where they are and all the ways in which they could do it and we can't, you know, right. is just in our heads. It is. And I started this with nothing, like yeah. literally nothing. I left the corporate world just as the housing market crashed. I lost all of my money. Also, my husband and I of almost 20 years split up. I started literally from nothing. I was living at my friend's house while it was for sale just to, you know, keep the ruffians out because it was out in the country sure. and using his studio to learn. And I was buying clay from him a box at a time or, you know, his old clay that he had remixed. I think my first kiln I got from Defiance College when they dismantled the ceramics program for $700 at an auction. My first wheel was Steve's old wheel from 1972. It was a Shimpo. And he had at some point put it in the barn, taken the wheel head off, hammered the shaft at an angle and fixed a bucket on it so that he could use it as a ball mill because the bucket would like rattle around. <laughs> so it's a completely screwed up shaft. And I like hammered it back as much as I could. And it didn't have a wheel head. 
and I can't get one on there because it's been beat to death. So I like fashioned and screwed on a bar stool seat and shimmed it so that it was level-ish so that I could throw. Like that was my first wheel. And that was about the time I met my husband who took pity on me and used his tax return on our third month of dating to buy me a new wheel. He's like, I can't watch this anymore. <laughs> You're like, here. I mean, our wheel was our wedding present from my parents because we eloped in the living room. So yeah, that was, which is fantastic. Like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If I haven't said thank you recently, thank you. You started. So that was 12 years ago. You went into the community, not a community studio in the sense that most of us have, but like studio space with other potters, still doing it by yourself. Then how did you learn ceramics? <laughs> so many ways so i unbeknownst to me i was collecting potters in my life i tend to collect people in a sense of like oh i don't know anybody who's a potter will you be my friend you're interesting and oh you're an electrician i need to know an electrician let's be friends you'd make a really good realtor <laughs> I got a guy. I got a guy. Yes, I have the guys. I just don't like the initial outreach. <laughs> That's hard for me. I'm such an introvert. So I had all of these friends who were potters and different kinds of potters. Most of them were fine art potters and then a few of them were production style potters. I had been collecting handmade pottery for years. When I had my gallery and store, my friend moved his pottery studio into the back during a winter because he was like out in a chicken coop or something. So he had moved his studio in and I would help him with glazing or just babysit the kilns or whatever. My last project that I did with the home goods store was in Paducah, Kentucky. And I met Michael Terra of Terracotta Ceramics and he's a poet and sculptor. So I'm working with Steve, who is the ceramics prophet Defiance College, who told me to make my own damn buttons and ended up living at his house and using his old studio for a while. And he's production, straight production, strip it down to be efficient. How many can you make in an hour kind of production? And then there's Michael who is like, it's not about the speed, it's about the end user's experience. And when we met, I was just looking at his studio because they had an open studio thing. And he met me, we introduced ourselves, we shook hands. He held my hand and with his piercing blue eyes, just keeps making eye contact with me. And he goes, you're a potter. No. <laughs> and he's like, Yes. You'll figure it out. <laughs> and he like stepped back and a couple months later, I'm still making like little buttons. Right. <laughs> and a little, there's a little sign that went viral on Pinterest that said money can't buy happiness, but it can buy yarn, which is the next best thing. So I was like little flat things and stamps, little jewelry pieces. Little... He's like, you just come to my studio for a week. You teach me social media and some tech graphic design things. Because he used to be a graphic designer, but it was before it was a tech project. Teach me some of your tricks and I'll teach you some pottery tricks. Okay. So we did this trade and like I left Kentucky and I'm like, I'm done. I'm a potter now. <laughs> this is it. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm a potter. I don't know how to make this work, but I'm a potter. So I started, Steve and I started doing collaboration stuff up at his studio in Angola, Indiana, and he was throwing and I was carving. I was hand building and carving. I was not throwing at all. And finally he's like, listen, I'm retired. I do not want to work as hard as you do. You have to learn how to throw. You have to. So he showed me how to center, open, and pull. He's like, you're going to do one pound cylinders until I get back from Nicaragua. See you in two weeks. They left. I was doing fine. They left. I couldn't center anything the entire two weeks they were gone. 
have this studio to myself. I have these glorious dreams of I'm going to make all of these cylinders. He's going to come back and there's going to be cylinders on every surface. There are no flipping <laughs> cylinders. So I call a friend. I'm like, phone a friend. I need help here. What's going on? Go over to his studio, sit down, center, open, pull. Fine. Go back to our studio. Can't do it. Can't get it centered. I'm like the newbie with 20 minutes in, still trying to center. And now I just have like two ounces of clay and a lot of slime. <laughs> they get back. Jennifer Beachy was in the studio and she had gone to, to Nicaragua with them. They get back. She sits down and she's like, well, of course you can't center. You're new. This bat is warped. And she like throws it out the garage door. Did he do that on purpose? Like, I didn't know. He threw on that bat. Now it wouldn't even, I wouldn't even dawn on me that it was a warped bat. But as a beginner, I wouldn't do it. So... After spending two weeks of not throwing anything, but spending eight to 10 hours a day, I'm like, I'm still clearly interested in doing this because I can't think of a single other thing in my entire life that I would dedicate 14 days, eight hours a day to failing at yep. and still want to try it. <laughs> my litmus test has always been, what am I staying awake at night doing? Yeah. But nobody's telling, like, not because I have to, not because, you know, what am I staying up doing? Like, when I was in the music school in college and, like, all of my peers were skipping other classes so that they could stay in the practice room longer. And instead, I was staying up until one in the morning on whatever little, like, totally non-important art project in my design classes. I was like, hmm, maybe, maybe I should listen to this. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Well, and it was it was a struggle for me getting started because I'm in this one car garage studio mm -hmm. with Steve and Jen. And Jen is not she isn't from an art or design background at all. She was in international studies, I think, and kind of found clay because she had to make Christmas gifts. So she took her last art elective in college to make Christmas gifts and fell in love with clay. And Steve was her professor. So he invited her to come work in the studio after college. And then there's Steve, who's straight production all the time, and he's got his little gallery attached to it. And then there's me. And I'm like, I'm trying to design something that is experiential when it's finished. And I don't imagine a mug. I imagine the person holding the mug in the room that they're in and what the room looks like and what their kitchen cupboards look like and what they're going to drink out of it. And I have this entire world in my head over a stinking simple mug. And then I'm kind of taking Steve's direction of... How do you strip it down so that it's easy to produce so you're not killing yourself on each one and you can make a living at it? And then I'm like, I made 400 of these. And he's like, great. Who the shit are you going to sell it to? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> this is a regular conversation in our house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we had the conversation about you can make all the things in the world, but if you're not putting yourself out there, nobody's going to know that they need to come buy it. So that kind of started my social media. My website kind of grew out of that. And I started to get a lot more focused just on what I wanted to make and who I wanted to make it for. And that I'm sure will continue to always morph. Mm. But I still have things now that were just starting to put into production that I designed back there in that one car garage, but I didn't have an audience for it yet. That's like now a decade later, my overnight success, I finally, I finally have the audience that is interested in these ideas that I had 10 years ago. So everything is such a flipping long game right now. I mean, always. I don't know if it's right yeah. now. Like that's that's the spoiler yeah. when everybody looks at like, oh, I have to grow my audience. Oh, I need more followers or whatever. It's like, well, just keep going. I read, uh, 
I don't know if it was another, if it was a quote or a podcast I was listening to while I was driving or something, but they were basic. the point was they were basically saying like, the key to succeeding is just not quitting because like the 99% of other people doing what you're doing at some point will probably quit, right? Like all of the statistics yeah. about small businesses failing in the first three years and the first five years and the first 10 years, et cetera, et cetera, like they're true, but some of those reasons are just because people, you know, it, it's hard and it's a slog and it's not roses and unicorns all the time. And so like, just keep going. No. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You know, I was making a living with 1500 Instagram followers. It was a different living that I'm making now with 10,000. Would it be better if I had 20,000? Absolutely. Am I going to wait until I have 20,000 to do something? Definitely not. Well, and also, is it the right 10,000? Is it the right 20,000? Like right. you were making a living with 1500 because they were the right 1,500 people, right? Can you imagine 1,500 people walking into your store right now? That would be awesome. <laughs> okay, everybody listening, if you're in Indianapolis, let's make this happen. <laughs> oh my God, that would be amazing. It would be so fun. It would be so fun and it would also be incredibly overwhelming. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's the thing with social media is I wish that they would change the interface. Not that, I mean, Instagram needs to fix a lot of things before they do this, but this seems like a relatively easy thing. What if we change the word followers to humans? Right? Like, wouldn't that change our mindset around like, oh, I only have 1,500 humans that follow me? It's like, that's a lot of freaking people. <laughs> that's a lot. Could you imagine if those were cats? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and you just did yes i did i have i have no segue question follow-up now because i'm distracted about the idea of 1500 cats i love it oh, i love it and we'll be right back after we all recover from cats <laughs> Okay. Oh, there's so many directions to go. There's one point I want to hit on before I dig deeper into the pragmatic side of teams and all of that. And that yeah. was you just kind of passingly mentioned taking this time to figure out what it means to be an artist. And from what I was hearing from you, even before before you stepped out of corporate, like recognizing, looking at spreadsheets as an art, designing a mm -hmm. store as an art, like that... I don't know, for me, it gives me so much permission because I often feel like I'm the black sheep in the arts world because I'm not particularly interested, or at least I haven't discovered any reason yet, to have this like style that is... I'm moving my hands and people can't see me. Like, you know, art with a, <laughs> art with a capital A, right? Like the pedestal yeah. style, right? And when you are out there trying to figure out how to make it work and you're looking at grants or you're looking at different like pragmatic financial means of keeping things afloat, all of those seem to be geared towards art with capital A, which is there's a lot of meaningful, important work being done. But like for me, I'm like that. I just want to be able to pay my bills by having my hands in mud more often. Like, that's what we're looking for. I'm all in on 24-ounce mugs because Etsy people like them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if you can make it a way that makes you happy, why not? Right. That week that I went down to Paducah, Kentucky and spent with Michael in his studio, like, they were really long days. We are both workaholics. We suck at creating boundaries between work and life. And we're both night owls. So everybody is like shutting down after dinner and we're like, 
Let's go. <laughs> We've got another eight hour day in the studio. And it's just the two of us and the dog, you know, and the midnight walk through the neighborhood because the dog had to get out, not because we needed to as, you know, human sentient beings needing something other than work. But while we were in the studio, we were talking about like, what does this mean for me to be an artist? And I always thought like I've known since I was a tiny kid and people asked what I wanted to be when I grow up. I said artist. I didn't though, because I started doing that and it did not spark joy. It gave me so much stress and so much anxiety. And I realized I'm a designer. I realized I'm a maker and I'm a designer. And he said, there's nothing wrong with that. And the thing you need to remember is art is making and design until you get to a point that all of those serendipitous things align at just the right moment. And miraculously you have something that's art and you spend the next decade trying to replicate that. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't sound fun to me. <laughs> no, I don't want any of that. No, thank you. <laughs> okay, I'm a designer <laughs> and a maker. There we go. Okay, got that. I've got my little labels on my little boxes. Now it's time to get outside the boxes. But yeah, I struggled a lot with it. I painted, I did fiber arts, I did polymer clay stuff. I worked with a goldsmith to see if maybe I wanted to do jewelry making. I love all of those things, but the common thread through all of them, oh, I did interior design. My favorite with interior design was coming up with the plan, the execution, whatever. I realized through all of that, the first time I started actually making a mug out of clay that all of those needs were satisfied in clay. The architectural, the engineering, the planning, the design, the texture, the color, the process, creating more efficiencies. Oh my God, I can use spreadsheets to keep track of my inventory and to plan out my production for the week and make sure I have enough glaze chemicals. And it took all the things like I had been training up to that point to put all of those things together in one medium and make a cup yeah this is this is the thing that boggles my mind about ceramics is i don't know any other medium i mean i've trained professionally in music i have my degree in graphic design i painted for a while like there's no other medium i know that is more complicated like that requires you to have oh. a relatively deep understanding of disparate things yeah engineering chemistry like very non-arty things. Yes. It's amazing to me. And it's always an adventure to me, especially at the engineering piece. I'm like, it's not just engineering a pot to work well. It's loading the kiln. And I, somewhere along the line, someone posted a photo of their gas kiln and the shells had all collapsed in the center. Like they opened the front door and the shells had collapsed in the center. And when you look at it, they were asking why. When you look at it, all of their shelf posts are aligned except in the center bottom. They're missing a one inch post that ruined the entire firing. And I, every time I get a new employee and I'm teaching them how to load a kiln, this is the photo that I like dredge through my screenshots to find because that one inch post completely screwed the integrity of the entire kiln. Yep. And anytime somebody tells me that they're interested in architecture or they love the idea of engineering, I'm like, we might be able to do something. <laughs> Come work for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's when I think about the conversations Francesco and I have, you know, we're focused on making, I was about to say just functional pottery, because a lot of times, you know, yeah. obviously potters kind of get the short end of the stick still in the fine art world, right? We're like climbing mm -hmm. our way, clawing our way up the capital A fine art world as craftspeople. Right. But when I think about everything he thinks through 
just quote unquote to make a mug you know in terms of the design of the rim how does the rim roll out so that when it touches your lips is it comfortable how big or small is the mug so that one it can be functional with the number of fingers that go into it but also then the weight of the liquid when it's in the mug and the balance there needs to be some space in the ceramics world that does focus in on the art of functionality i think because yeah. we we definitely define for ourselves you know, for us, we don't really identify as artists. We identify as craftspeople when that, right. that we're interested in it for the integrity of the craft and the mastery of the craft. But that's, yeah, absolutely. you know, not, I can't pitch a grant on that. <laughs> I mean, maybe we need to, maybe it's time they start reading those because without Without that attention to detail, you look back and you look at the potters who were starting to do production in the 50s and 60s and how they started to think about those things. And now we're looking at them in a museum and we're looking at those relationships between form and function. But at the time, did anybody think that that was an elevated thing or did they think it was a really weird straight-sided cup? Yep. There's so much that I think eventually someone's going to appreciate. But in the meantime, when someone says, oh, so you're an artist, I say no. I'm not. I mean, maybe sometimes I hit on it and that's cool, but art to me is in the eye of the beholder and it's not something that I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing something that is really functional, that enhances someone's daily life. Love it. Love it. Okay. Let's go into the pragmatic then. I feel like that's just a perfect okay. audio segue that I can think of. So 12 years ago, you quit the corporate job, you figure out this pottery thing and how long were you working by yourself before? So when did, because you mentioned, obviously you got sick and that was kind of the yeah. dawn, you know, the smack, if you will, as far as, oh, this would be better not by myself. How far in was that? Yeah. That was, that was just five years ago. Hold up. So I just need to emphasize for everyone, you have grown Gravesco to where it is right now in the last five years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Five years ago, I did $57,000 in sales for the whole year. It was enough for me to live on. I was working out of the back of my house. My kilns were in a shed at the end of the driveway. Everything was harder than it needed to be. I did have a very part-time assistant who would come a few days a month and like prep clay, maybe unload kilns, clean floors, help with a photo shoot, that sort of thing. But it was, it was pretty sporadic. Got married. My husband started helping me with packing orders at the dining table when he got home from his day job. And we moved to Indianapolis almost five years ago. Okay. And that was when I was like, shit's pricey here. <laughs> <laughs> Home and studio was $500 a month when we lived up north. And up my north, studio Indiana. Was, yes, okay. northern Indiana. Okay, yep. Here, my first studio was $750 a month. Which is still like, for me from Chicago is like, oh my God, right. what a steal. <laughs> Oh, and here it was a steal too, because it was a filthy floor in a barely renovated back corner of a building that was supposed to be turned into micromanufacturing space as an incubator, but never quite happened. So I'm in like the back corner of this old machine shop with 700 square feet. This is where people die in horror movies is what I'm hearing. Yes, absolutely. When I went to look at it, I was by myself and I pulled up and I'm like, this is sus. Okay. This is I don't like, know this dude who showed me the space. This is weird. This, I'm like on the phone with my husband. I'm like, I don't know. I'm sharing my location right now. If you don't hear from me in 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. I'm dead, clearly. 
And he's like, you're going to be fine. You're a badass. You can kick anyone's ass. Because like, I have a history of bar fights or something. I don't know. <laughs> so we look at the space and I, the whole time my face is just like, the, it is this hellhole. It's dark and it's filthy. He's like, and we put in all new LED lighting and there's outlets on every pole. And I'm like, sold. What a concept. <laughs> okay. You're the only person who called me back. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> yep. It turned out to be just fine. <laughs> but I left there and Chris goes, so what'd you think of the space? I'm like, I freaking hate it. It's depressing as hell. There's like a basement window, but somehow it's way above the ground. <laughs> So he comes and he looks at it. He's like, this is going to be, this is going to be great. You're going to love it here. This is going to be just fine. And nobody else that I had called ever ended up calling me back. So, you know, cost of living was high here. Our rent was double what it was up when we were at the cottage. Now I've got studio expenses. Mackenzie was my first assistant here in Indianapolis. And I had done shows with her dad for years because he's a jeweler. And she knew Steve and had been coming to the studio to do stuff with Steve and kind of decide if she wanted to be a potter or not. So I've known her since she was maybe seven, nine years old. She messaged me on Facebook. I'm in Indianapolis. I want to be your assistant. And she started out with, do you need help moving? Oh, like, yes. This should be the career advice that people are giving to college students. Start your messages to small business owners or whoever with like, do you need help with the shitty stuff? cool i'm in <laughs> yep yep my very first assistant that was he was 13 he walked into my store and he goes when i turn 14 i'm gonna come work for you and i'm gonna be your cleaning bitch and your floors are never gonna look better <laughs> like sweet let me know when is your birthday when's your birthday i'll send you a gift and a employee statement yes Jacob was awesome and you know he worked with me there and he worked with me at the lake as my very part-time assistant and now he's gone on to bigger and better things but yeah, so it was just Mackenzie and I for the first year, and then we started to grow from there. So when you guys moved, you knew you were going to start building a team, basically. Well, so Chris is an architect. He was working as an architectural engineer, and they had he was working at the firm in Fort Wayne. They had an office in Indianapolis. At the Christmas party, a month before we moved, he smacked the partner at the Indianapolis office on the back and said, when are you going to have a desk for me in Indianapolis? To which I was like, what? <laughs> Wait, what? I've been building this too. What are we doing? So we moved in January and basically I was like, either I have to get a day job or I have to make this work. There is no option because with the cost of living here, I couldn't continue to do what I was doing. Something had to change in a big way. And so I decided this is the time to grow it. Like, I know that I can't afford to get sick here because Chris can't afford all of the expenses and the studio expenses on his paycheck. So I have to be bringing in money. Mm -hmm. I can't take three months off because I'm sick. And I have permanent lung damage now from that virus. And I have since found out I have autoimmune disorder and all of these other things that just knowing that I can step out for a couple of days if I get really sick and allow myself to recover without the stress of, are we going to be able to stay afloat? Has been worth the price of admittance. Yeah. And maybe that's a weird motivation for some people and not something that's on their radar at all. But the reality of losing everything because you get a cold, Yep. I decided, you know, we have to make, we have to make $150,000 in the studio 
to cover the expenses and to cover me having a full-time assistant who can step in when I'm not available. So how do I do that? How many mugs is that? Who needs that many mugs? Now I need to go find them and talk to them. And that's the biggest, that's the piece that, well, I find it's twofold. Either people can't make that many mugs in a reasonable amount of time is number one, or number two, which is the conversation we have a lot, Francesco can make that many mugs. No problem. Like production man, NBD. You need somebody part-time sometime, we'll come visit Indiana. (laughs) No big deal. But had no background in marketing and in sales, which is why I always joke that he married his CMO because it was like, that's great that you can make that many, but we don't have that many shelves or space or square footage in the basement to store them if we're not selling them. And that is the part that I think for a lot of creatives, they don't want to think about it because somehow we've made sales into this dirty four-letter word when really it's just... It just is. You know, we can't, until your mortgage lender is going to let you trade a box of mugs for this month's mortgage payment, like, well. I've done dental work, but so far, no dice on the rent. (laughs) It's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, so Mackenzie comes on, kind of give us the however much detail, however you want long to take it. So that's basically like from that point to now is a five-year, because you guys just, just started the retail store, right? Yes. Yeah, we just started that August 18th. Walk us through this last five years. You know, small question. Just a little, just a little something, something. Right before we left the lake, I had a call with Marisa Lowen. She's a business coach up in Edmonton, Alberta. And we've crossed paths several times on Facebook. Finally, she's like, just book a 30-minute call with me because I think I have some things that will help you get to the next level. So I booked the call. We lasted like 18 minutes and I'm like, I got to go. I have stuff to do. This is amazing. But one of the first things that she said to me was, you don't make it easy enough for people to give you money. Mm. So look at that process and how can you make it as effortless as possible for people to give you their money in exchange for a pot? You shouldn't have to click through a bunch of things. You shouldn't have to jump through hoops. What can you do to make that easy? And then You don't ask people to give you money in exchange for pots. So how do you start crafting some calls to action? You know, you've got these beautiful social media posts and you tell the story and then what? Dead air. How about you do the beautiful social media post, you tell the story, and then you say this mug is available. Click the link in my bio. What? People don't know to do that? Well, they don't. So I started doing that and we started getting a little bit more sales. And then I'm like, okay, when we get to Indianapolis, I can do this. If I need to hop on another call with Marisa, I will. We also talked about, you know, raising prices because of my background. I know that relationship between retail and wholesale. And you always price your goods for wholesale if you intend to sell wholesale. Then you mark them up to retail because the marketing and all of that time is going to take the same amount of time as if you were buying wholesale from somebody else. Thank you. The whole, oh, I only do retail because I want to keep 100% of the profits. It's like, sweetie, you aren't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have been screaming this from the rooftops before I even could make the pots to try it myself because I I know how much time I've put in, you know, as a photographer, most of my time is not behind the camera. Most of my time is networking and marketing and all of the things. Ah. Okay, keep yeah. going, keep going. I'm just like, <laughs> yes. So we get to Indianapolis and the other thing that Marisa had said to me was when you get there, the assistant that you need to find is the person who will do all the things that keep you out of your zone of genius. Mm-hmm. So I was like, but I don't want to hire somebody just to clean my floors. And she's like, you need to hire someone to clean your floors because 
somebody else actually enjoys the satisfaction of doing that. Somebody else enjoys the satisfaction of sieving glaze. Somebody else enjoys the satisfaction of all these things that don't bring you joy and keep you away from being productive. So if somebody mops the floor, how many mugs can you make in that time? If somebody else packs your boxes, how many mugs can you make in that time? So when I hired Mackenzie, I gave her the list of all the shit I didn't want to do. And I was like, and in exchange, I'll start to teach you how to do the things that will help you in your own ceramics business as well. It wasn't very far in and she's like, screw this. I'm working for you forever because I don't want to do all the things you do. She's like, I don't want to do the marketing. Yeah. I don't want to think about all of this stuff. So that was the beginning of it. And that year we did, we went from 57,000 with me working alone to 150,000 in the year with me working with Mackenzie. And in that time, we landed this big project because when I was looking at how many things do I have to make and who's going to buy them, I realized if I make enough things, I don't have time to also market. Like I couldn't do all of the things. So I sought out wholesale partnerships that would allow them to do the marketing so I could just make the stuff while we built our systems. And that ended up being a food blogger who ended up taking up 80% of our production time. And it was amazing. That's a dream. One contact for 80% of what I also assume is your revenue if it's your production yes. time. It's terrifying. Also true, because if they change and they leave, then you're SOL. Yes. So I kept trying to like fill that space with other wholesale clients. This food blogger we were working with was private label. So our name's not on it. I can't say who the food blogger is. It was her entire product line that I helped her design. So it's not even my designs per se. It's just us manufacturing them basically. And it was a really amazing way to get started. There were some ways that she was incredibly supportive. Like when we needed more kilns, she fronted the cost of the kiln and we get paid that back through invoices. So, you know, having come from starting my studio with nothing and having gone through a divorce and all of the financial stuff I'd gone through, I didn't have money to get loans. Wouldn't have any way because it's terrifying to me. So we were able to kind of grow that way. But I realized a year and a half into that project, this is getting exponentially larger and our expenses are going up considerably as a result of that. But my profit margin is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking to the point that, you know, we ended up hiring three more people to help with this project, bumped us up to $300,000. So three years in a row, we more than doubled revenue. Last year, we did a little over 400,000, no, a little over 500,000. We had 14 people on the team. We were doing constant production, eight kilns running at a time. And I bought all like round and oval kilns. I didn't buy a big commercial kiln because I know the market's going to fluctuate. If something goes away, I can't afford to lose everything in a big kiln. Right. I can afford to lose everything in a round or an oval. If I need to reconfigure and downsize, I can sell a round or an oval kiln. I can't sell a commercial kiln this easily. So just kind of thinking into the future with those things. So we built the team to 14 people. Everybody... I thought would be doing a bunch of different things. Everybody settled into this task that they love doing. Allie wanted to trim. That's all she wanted to do. She thought she was going to be a production potter. She's like, no, just give me carts of pots. Let me trim. It's so satisfying. Mackenzie likes to do a lot of different things throughout the day. So she'll help with glazing. She'll help with trimming. She knows how to do all the things I know how to do. And she'll step in wherever she's most needed. Then we have, like, we ended up during the pandemic, we hired Bradley to help with shipping when Chris went back to work. 
And Chris ended up losing his job, came to work with me full time. Best damn thing ever. And Bradley ended up taking over maintenance and I taught him how to fix kilns and he does all of our clay prep and runs and fixes all of the pug mills and studio cleaning and all of those things. So everybody kind of has their own area of expertise that they've really kind of chosen in the studio. Now they're also all rigid enough that they don't want to do work outside their area of expertise. <laughs> so sometimes that's an adventure where I'm like, no, 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 I need help over here. And they're like, no, I'm better served over here. I'm like, no, I need help over here. Like I can't lift this box by myself. It'll take 30 seconds. <laughs> I appreciate that you're better serving over there, but right now. So that was kind of how we grew. It just kept being like Mackenzie and I having this conversation of, what is keeping us from working in our zones of genius? Mm. Who do we need to step in and fill the next the next thing so we can keep doing what we're best at? This past year, we let the food blogger go at the beginning of 2022. It has been a hard year, like straight up been a challenge. As I was doing that, I was talking to Becca Otis about it. And she's like, I think this is time for me to go on and do the next thing. So she left at that point. We're doing a lot of business on fair wholesale. The algorithm changed and we went from a couple thousand dollars in wholesale orders a day to zero for six weeks. Completely destroyed my savings. Ended up taking out the first loan I've ever taken out for the business. So as team members left to do other things, we have not this year filled those positions because I'm restructuring and really trying to figure out where are we going now? Because I realized I don't want to keep working so hard for zero profit margin. Mm -hmm just to keep people employed. Like it was paying the bills working with the food blogger in the last year, but we were not making any money. Right. I was not making an income. We were barely breaking even. And like, if one thing went wrong, it wasn't going to work anymore. So I blew that up. <laughs> this year has been crazy stressful. And you know, with the stuff with the economy, we're really rethinking how we want to do things. And one of the things I realized this year is I don't want to continue working private label because the sustainability of only making things where no one knows we're making them is not helping my company. Yeah. That can be a small thing. That can be a small project if it's something that really lights me up, but that's not going to help us sustain in the long term. And it's no longer a viable business option. Two years ago it was. Now it is not. So recognizing those things has helped tremendously. And having this team that all works in their zone of genius has allowed me to be like, okay, Sarah's really good at making cylinders, things that require ribbing. Merit's really good with like loose throwing lines. So what projects can I go after that will keep those two busy mm -hmm. that will then keep everyone else on the team busy? And now I'm working on how do I get my hands back in clay because I've barely touched clay this year. I'm doing the design work, but I'm doing so much of the admin and the marketing work and the production planning and all of that stuff that I'm not really making much and I'm missing it. So we're getting ready to launch a VIP project that you have to be on the VIP list to get the stuff that I'm personally making because it's gonna be really limited and I'm only gonna make the things I want to make while we continue to also sell the production line. So finding those team members, you know, we had some misses. We had some amazing hits. Allie was fucking phenomenal at trimming pots and that wasn't her life dream. She wanted to do something else. We fully supported her moving on and doing something completely different. And Josie stepped into our lives. And Josie's trimming now and seems to be really satisfied with it. And, you know, she loves that whatever she's interested in, she can have her headphones on and pursue that while she's trimming pots. And she's got the satisfaction at the end of the day. Plus, she's learning new things and kind of deciding what she wants to do with her time when 
this phase is over. So trying to nurture those humans as the individuals that they are is both the biggest reward and sometimes the biggest challenge as a business owner. Yes. I don't know if that answers your question or not, or like 40 other ones you didn't ask, but... Oh, it's brilliant. And I'm like jotting down all of the other questions and just reflections for myself that come up with it. Because Mm -hmm. as I said before we hit record, what I was seeing from the outside looking in and from my own experience of growing a team, realizing that growing a team wasn't giving me the life and the freedom that I Mm -hmm. thought that it would... And then kind of pulling back from that to be like, hold on a second. But also what you mentioned, there's so many things you mentioned, but like what I said before we hit record was what I was seeing you do and are doing is threading this very, very, very fine needle between not being a solopreneur, right? Not being an individual maker who's just what some people would call a lifestyle business when it meaning that. You're making and you're selling what you're making, but there is, and it provides for your life. But if you stop, then you can't provide for your life. That is more or less what the definition of a lifestyle business is. You're not doing that anymore, but you're also not at the scale of industrial machine, et cetera, et cetera. And from my own experience, that is a very hard place to get the balance right, to get the balance right on the profit margin, to be able to keep the doors open, to also get the balance right on kind of staying in your lane, right? Because as you start to grow, Kurt Hammerly and I talked about this, growth is like siren, right? It's like a minx that you're like, once you start to do it and you succeed a little bit at it, it's like, okay, well, what can I do next? And at least my experience is I tried to grow faster than what I actually had the resources for, right? I launched a different photography brand thinking we were going to have all these other shooters working with me when really I didn't have that many leads to sustain. I had purposely built my business originally to kind of funnel down who would contact me. So it's not like I had thousands of people reaching out and, oh, let me hire these five other photographers to do these gigs, Right. right? So that's not really a question, just a (laughs) it's <laughs> it's really valid, though, because we are in a tough spot right now. Like my goal for this year was to break even with last year because we lost this or let go of this big client. Mm-hmm. So the goal is to break even. Mm-hmm. I don't need to grow. We're actually shrinking because our profit margin is higher. So I've pulled back on what we're producing. Sarah asked me a few weeks ago, she's like, but when is the big production going to start? And I'm like, we're in it. Like we don't have to sell 800 pots, we can sell 600 pots and make the same amount of money. So instead of trying to sell 800 pots and killing myself, I'm trying to sell 600 so we break even so that we can figure this out this year and figure out what our resources really are and what we're really capable of to grow. Because right now we're breaking even barely. Well, we'll break even by the end of this month, hopefully. So it's been an adventure to be in business without the focus on growth for the first time in a long time. We'll break even with what we did last year and that will be perfectly happy because holy crap, we just did that by picking up 80% of our production in new customers. Yeah, We went from 22 wholesale customers to 960 wholesale customers. (laughs) Right? What the shit? That is absurd. It is. It is absolutely absurd, but it feels so much better because if I lose one, it's fine. Right. Where if I lost one before, my entire business was screwed. Right. So the balance of that feels better. And now in the coming year, my goal is 
to get us back out of the debt that happened this year and to really solidify Graves Co. Pottery as kind of a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So my biggest design influence, and it's so funny because people have different reactions to it. My biggest design influence is Ralph Lauren. Cool. I was just really hoping you weren't going to say like Chip and Joanna Gaines or something, because then I was going to have I was going to have a lot of questions about who I thought you were as a person. <laughs> yeah. No, while I do watch the show because I want to see what people are falling in love with. No, that's just market research. And you're just smart. I thought that maybe we could take over because hi, two self-employed artists bought a fixer upper home in the Midwest. So we've got the wholesome angle, like, you know, immigrant husband, extroverted wife, like we could do the whole thing. But, you know, apparently HGTV has not realized that we exist yet. And also like would rather have a healthy relationship because also have gone through a divorce before. I'm going to yes. opt for not. But, you yeah, know, people told me like, oh, you should have a reality show. I'm like, sweet Jesus. No. <laughs> <laughs> if there is a market, I think we could be a reality show on the BBC because they seem to like reality shows where everyone's just nice and it's just lovely. Yeah. Like I'm here for that. I could do that. Yeah, that would be nice. Like I want to treat people like they're decent humans. Right. right. That would be awesome. Yeah. I digress. Okay, where we we were talking about wholesale and nine hundred and six of some crazy yeah. number. Yes, crazy number. So growing up, Ralph Lauren was my biggest design influence, mm -hmm. and you know, growing up in retail, I was in fashion, so it was Midwestern fashion. Yep. So Ralph Lauren was like the shit because if you went above, it was Ralph our only fashion. Like nobody thinks of the Midwest as fashion. Because if you went above Ralph Lauren, then you were going to Chicago right. or you were going to New York or you were going somewhere else and then you were hoity-toity. Mm -hmm. Ralph Lauren was, that was enough. But what I loved was, you know, I was growing up in the 70s and 80s and seeing him break all of these molds in marketing. I was there when he was doing the first in-store shops on a mass scale. No one did that before him. No one went to department stores and said, you can only carry my goods if you take a hundred square foot space and you put this flooring and this wall structure and this painting and this fixturing and you train your visual merchandising people to do it this way. And I was like, mind blown. Whoa, he's creating an entire experience within an experience. And that was really exciting to me. It was also exciting to me to see him do that whole Western theme mm -hmm. and the preppy theme and the East Coast theme. And they all worked and you could mix and match it all. And people responded to all of it. When he did the, I think it was a Vogue layout. It was a two page ad spread of like a white barn fence, misty. There were no clothes in the ad. And you knew exactly who it was and what you wanted to feel like when you wore it. And that lit me up as a young designer. Like, how do you create a product and an assortment that makes people feel a certain way that when they use it. And then what I'm working on now that, you know, we have this stable wholesale base, stable-ish, I mean, as stable as anything is right now. As stable as 916 accounts gets. <laughs> right. But while we have this stable base, my next step is creating that immersive experience so that when somebody grabs our mug, they're not just like, oh, I have a mug. It's it's the mug. It's the one that just makes them feel good and they get home at the end of the day and it's their security blankie with their tea in it or their whiskey or you know, whatever. It might change throughout the day. <laughs> right. 
It's the one that you use throughout the day because it changes. Like creating that in all-encompassing experience drives me. So now that we have moved out of just filling orders for someone else that doesn't have our name on it, my focus now is really being able to communicate the thought process behind each design and the way that it can change with how you use it. And, you know, one of our pieces works in a farmhouse Chip and Joanna Gaines style kitchen, but it also works in a high rise loft or in, you know, our old furniture factory loft that we live in or your bungalow house in the cool little neighborhood. Like It doesn't matter because it's going to fit in with all of those while still having its own voice. The thing I want to hit people over the head with as you're talking about this, because my guess is some people are going to hear us talking about how you can create something that suits a very big diversity of people and how someone like Ralph Lauren was able to do that. But what you're saying, well, it's at its core, more than likely the same value for everyone Mm -hmm. and the same feeling for everyone. And so that is still a niche, that is still a focus, that is still a bullseye in the center that you are only speaking to that one raison d'etre, you know, whatever. I just butchered my French, but that's all right. I don't know any better. So, you know, (laughs) because I think a lot of people hear like, oh, well, see, I can have disparate aesthetics and market to all these different people, but that's not what you're talking about. What you're talking about is getting really clear on a feeling and a value. Really clear on a feeling and making things that I want. So the other thing that was really inspiring, there's a documentary called Very Ralph on HBO right now. And if you're at all interested in design, totally worth watching. Chris watched it a couple of times with me and I just showed it to my friend Veronica last weekend when she was in town from Portland. And after watching it, she goes, I get it now. Like I get what you're trying to say now because he was like, I don't like anything that's available out there. None of it's quite suiting my needs. So I'm going to make the thing I want And once I make the thing I want, I can find an audience for it. Mm -hmm. And I've shifted from I'm making the things people want to I'm making the things I want and then finding those like-minded people who also like it. That said, while I have a wide variety of forms that we do, they all have really specific elements that make them cohesive as a collection as well. That collection just happens to fit into a lot of different aesthetics because classic is my goal. And the beautiful thing of this conversation is we've brought, among many things, but is for someone who gets really, really stressed out about us talking about finding this aesthetic and this feeling and this value and the market research and the fact that you have decades of experience to be this good at it, there are other solutions to not do that. That is why you can pursue wholesale clients. That is why you might want to do the, oh, I just forgot the term for it, like the name when you... When you have private label, private label, there we go. Goodness gracious. Why did I do a non-caffeinated tea for this call? That was foolish. What in the world. But, you know, like if if some of the stuff that we're talking about is like that stresses me out. I never want to do that. Cool. There's these oh. other business models to look at. Yeah. What I was thinking about while you were talking about being able to make these changes and about rather than pursuing growth, breaking even this year. And that this has been my experience of the last couple of years. I've been doing very similar things, like rather than pushing and growing on the photography end, realizing I want to make some changes and kind of just sustaining. But the ways in which we've been able to do that is because I got really clear on my numbers yes, and spreadsheets. It all comes back full circle right there. <laughs> because when you get comfortable with that stuff, 
you can make these decisions without, I mean, it's still going to be a little stressful. It's still going to, you know, there's less stress, I guess, because you can make informed decisions to say, if we sell 600 mugs instead of 800, we'll be okay. But I couldn't do that before. I mean, talking about growth in numbers, in 2019, I was a very small number away from doing $300,000 in revenue. And that was me full-time, a part-time studio manager, and two independent contractors that were shooting with me. That's it, which is bananas. But I was so stuck in this grow, 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 reinvest in the business that I was doing almost $300,000 in revenue and paying myself somewhere in the vicinity of about $50,000 a year, which is not the number you should be earning. Nope. But because I was constantly reinvesting back into the business, and so my operations budget was like bananas. It was through the roof. And now, like having, you know, as traumatic as 2020 was for so many people, like that massive pause for me made me look at those numbers and go, oh, hold on a second. I can do a third of that revenue, maybe not a third, I can do half, let's say, of that revenue, or I can do 200000 in revenue and pay myself a more reasonable amount because living in Chicago on $50,000 a year is not, that might sound like a very big number to some people, but the reality of an urban environment, that doesn't get you very far. So going back to our system's brains, it gave me so much power to make healthy decisions rather than like right now, currently, as we're recording at the end of the year, knowing my numbers, I can say no to inquiries coming in Mm-hmm. And feel okay about it because I need that rest right now. And I also right. know that we've met our goals and we can pay the bills and we'll be fine. Right, right. And knowing those numbers for me, like right now, you know, companies are coming out of the woodwork going, can you give us 120 mugs with our logo on it for Christmas gifts? Well, I did this call in August because that's when we needed to be doing this work. But I also knew based on the last few years that this would happen. So we've been stocking up on mugs. We just sold out like in the last week and a half we've had orders for maybe two weeks we've had orders for 700 and some mugs and we had them made bisque fired and sitting on the shelf ready to go they just needed to be glazed some of them needed a logo some of them were just mugs but we were able to ship those out now when i get an inquiry i'm able to say i'm sorry but we're not going to be able to ship those until mid-december or possibly even the week of christmas And I'm okay with it because I knew I needed to sell this many mugs by the beginning of December. So we had them made and we had them sitting on the shelf and we'd been working on them all summer. Yeah, having that information, I think for some people it's really stressful, but for me, it's comforting to be able to go, no, it's okay. Like, even if I always have this worst case scenario, (laughs) Veronica and I last week, I kept joking about because trauma. I'm like, well, if you know, the entire team left tomorrow, what happens? Mm-hmm. Like if something happened like COVID where we can't have the team in the studio tomorrow, do we have enough product to sustain the expenses that we have for the rest of the year? So that's kind of what I've been working towards. Like if we sold everything we have right now and we didn't make anything else, we have enough to get us through the end of the year with just me glazing and firing kilns. I have a spreadsheet like that. Next year, I'd like to make a real salary. <laughs> So we're working on that. We're working back towards that. Like basically my salary this year was a reinvestment in the company for doing that crazy thing and saying no to $300,000 account. Yeah. Yeah. That's so amazing. Oh, I have so many more notes, but I also feel like that's a very natural kind of like we actually put a period on a sentence instead of a comma. (laughs) And then 
the only other thing I just want to recognize pragmatically for people, and this was my struggle when I started growing a team, was the amount of energy that goes into training someone and then the Mm -hmm. risk and the knowledge that a lot of times the jobs that we're providing people while meaningful, while hopefully, you know, healthier than retail, frankly, you know, it's not the it's not a career job. They're not going to be there for 10 right. years the way we are as owners. And so the energy that goes into training people, knowing a year, two years, three years later, they might be turning around and leaving. Right. Is a, for lack of a better phrase, a mind fuck. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, it's a risk to the business. And I think this is something that a lot of people probably would struggle with if if this type of business model and growing a team is interesting to someone it's a huge struggle to get over to try and figure out a way of onboarding and sustaining a team yes with the risk of okay you have someone on the team that that does all of your trimming what happens if she decides she gives her two weeks notice at the end of this month right how does that work and there there is a innate risk but there was also just as much risk when you were by yourself and then you got a cold. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, a cold could ruin my business, you know, five years ago. Mm-hmm. And now if Josie told me tomorrow that she can't come back for whatever reason, we have people on the team who are capable of stepping in mm-hmm. and filling those roles. I can step in and fill that role until we find the next perfect person for that job. But the thing that has been, I think, the biggest help out of everything is having a really good friend who is a systems expert. And she touches base with me every few months and says, what's causing you friction in the studio? Let's create a system for that so that you're not spending so much time on it. And that started out a year and a half ago with adding Slack for communication. We might all be in the same building most of the time, but I was getting 75 to 80 text messages a day. Oh my God. I can't get anything done. I can't get anything done because how long it takes you know i'm running at a deficit it takes 20 minutes to refocus yourself after a distraction and i'm getting 75 of them like there aren't that many minutes in a day so we implemented slack and we implemented a boundary for me that i'm not on it all the time i'm checking in throughout the day so unless something is a oh shit it production stops if i don't get this question answered right now Mm mm-hmm then they'll shoot me a message otherwise it's all happening in slack and they can answer each other's questions Nine times out of 10, somebody else on the team knows the answer or can at least have a stopgap answer until I can get to it. So that was huge. And then we started using ClickUp. We're probably going to switch to Notion. Like I'm working on changing it up. ClickUp was invented for people who use a computer and none of us have computers in the studio. We all have phones. So we're going to use Notion instead, but it allows me to create a production calendar and then assign those tasks to different people on the team who are satisfied by checking them off. Like those little communication pieces that we can automate as much as possible. We have a board filled in ClickUp with production and it tells what the piece rate is to make the thing, how much clay it takes, what the thrown measurements are, a photo of it, how it gets trimmed. All of those little details are there so that they don't have to come to me to ask that question. They have the ability to find those resources on their own. So as we get a new potter who starts with us, we can be like, here's all of the info. Obviously, we're here to help you, but rather than sitting there waiting for an answer, these are some resources available to you. And we can do much better with all of that 
and I'm still like, it's a constant work in progress, Yeah. but having those systems is such a big help. And it's little things like I do the production list. Merit makes the mugs. When Merit's done, she hops in Slack and she says, Hey Josie, I made this many mugs today. Josie looks at it, looks at how many handles she has available to put on those mugs because Bradley extrudes and cuts them. Josie's like, hey, Bradley, I need 30 more round handles cut to five and a half inches by Wednesday. So now Bradley has his task. Josie knows what she's doing. Mackenzie's seeing that happening. So she knows what's happening with kiln loading and when to expect things. And I can see all of that from right here while I'm talking to you and know what's happening in the studio instead of getting there and going, what the shit happened today? Why didn't this get done? Or we really needed this to be a priority. Or, you know, maybe Merit's like, I'm going to throw these 75 mugs today. And I could be like, whoa, wait, actually, we have orders for this other thing. Can you switch days? So having those systems in place and some of those tools, I think is absolutely necessary for running a team. And if that's not your forte, find someone who can set that up for you. I think it's 100% crucial for a team. I still do it for myself individually, even. Mm -hmm. Because my biggest thing is how much, how can I get everything that's in my brain out of my brain to give my brain more space? Oh my gosh, yes. Because if I don't get it out, I have the merry-go-round from hell. Uh Uh-huh. And I lay in bed worrying that I'm going to forget about it. Or it gets written down on disparate places and then I wrote one thing on a scrap piece of paper here. I wrote something else in a notebook there. Like, yeah. so I still would, okay, maybe it doesn't have to be as advanced as what you need for a whole team, but I still right. 100% would encourage anyone just independently yeah. to get it in some kind of a system because then you don't, I have never had to, I don't come and sit down at my desk in the morning and wonder what I need to get done. Because I right. open up Asana and it's all right there. Yep. Same. And so I had looked at, we'd worked with Trello for a while. Then mm-hmm. we switched to ClickUp. ClickUp's not quite cutting it. I realized besides the issue that ClickUp looks different on every device. Mm. Oh, I'm not all seeing the same thing, which is a problem. I don't love it because it looks ugly. So... After this recording, I may make you a Loom video of Asana because what I love about Asana, especially, is different people who process information in different ways. You can look at the exact same project in different views. So you can look, and I'm not going to like belabor this point. Everyone's going to be like, dear God, okay, when's this podcast episode end? (laughs) But it has to, the information has to be in in a process that works for people. And for me, I can look at any of those different views in ClickUp but it's still ugly. No, I this still is don't want to look at it. <laughs> I do like the Asana experience better on desktop than on mobile, but mobile it still totally works. It's just obviously it's a smaller screen, so there's less information. Right. But the other thing I love about it is different projects for me visually require a different organization. So like yes. I can use my content calendar for like social media marketing, the root view of it is calendar. But, you know, a the the wholesale commission order we just got for because, yes, a business contacted us for 190 mugs. Thank God they don't want a logo so we can do it. But Yay. like Francesco and I can have a different project that has columns that then is like inquired, confirmed, you know, needs to be thrown, needs to be trimmed, needs to be fired, you know, whatever you can. And those can, those things can move within columns because calendar view wouldn't make sense. But anyway, I love it. We can talk about it another time. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's awesome. We use that as well for creating how much clay needs to be prepped. So we take that list and then it's like we know that that mug is one pound four ounces mm-hmm. and we need 190 of them. So then Bradley can look at that and just go, yep. oh, I need to make this. Yep. And this is where we come back full circle to talking about production throwing because I know there's going to be a bunch of side hustlers and hobbyists who are like, none of this works for me because I don't make the same thing over and over again, to which I just challenge a little bit, just a little bit. Like, it doesn't have to be production throwing in the sense that everything is perfectly identical. But if you do improve and practice your technique to where all of your mugs are the same weight or all of, you know, a certain set number of mugs hold the same liquid volume, because all of this interconnects to pricing and to figuring out the cost that it makes to make something. And like, yes, maybe you don't want every single one to look the same, but if your resources used as far as materials and whatnot are the same, then we can figure out pricing. Ta-da! Absolutely. That's why we have the artist choice mug. It's one pound, four ounces of clay, make whatever the shit you want. Yep. It's gonna hold essentially the same volume because we all throw consistently. So it makes life so much easier for us to be able to have that as a weight instead of just randomly, how far can I pull this clay? Because I know how far I can pull a pound, four ounces. I don't know how far I can pull something that's random. Yep, yep. And also, I'm a pull it until I break it person. What's the breaking point on this ball of clay? (laughs) It's part of also learning the skill, right? Like this is the thing that I was just talking to Shair about this, like that so many of us when we first start making are so attached to finishing as opposed to make for the sake of learning, make because you're going to break it, make because you're going to cut it in half and how far that can take you in your skill as opposed to, oh shit, it took me 20 minutes to throw this cylinder. I have to keep it and I have to make it into a mug even though it doesn't make sense to. Right, right. Yeah, learning to throw with Steve was great because he was like, you're going to make cylinders and at the end of the day, you're going to keep one. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the week, you're going to keep one. And at the end of the month, we're going to fire one. Because why would you waste all of these resources for your ego? Yep. Yep. Only to then like six months later, realize how bad they were because your skills have improved so much. And now what are you going to do with them? (laughs) Yeah. Jen BG with her spoon rest, she fired something she didn't love. And then I'm the jerk who's like digging them out of the trash tees in my own kitchen. And I still have it. It's like 10 years later and I still have this trash spoon rest that she didn't love because it was a weird size and shape. And she's like, I can't, I'm still annoyed that she won't let out of the trash. Like every time you come visit me, you have to look at your horror. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about your luck. You shouldn't have fired it. You did this to yourself. Okay. Well, because I have used up so much of your time and could keep going, I'm going to ask one big question, but it's the last one. And it can be as as not big as you want it to be. But is there something that you feel like we haven't touched upon, whether that be with the team, whether that be with the trajectory of your career, whatever subject that you just feel like for the people listening who are totally obsessed with this craft of ours, trying to figure out how they can spend more time or whatever, like just Take it as you will. I think the hardest lesson for me to learn, and I still struggle with it sometimes, is make the things that bring you joy. And if it doesn't bring you joy and you're feeling hesitation, say no. It is not worth your time. It is not worth your energy. The money is never worth it if the project doesn't bring you joy. Awesome. That has been a through line from so many people. And I also suck at taking that advice. 
Because it's scary. Because it's like, yes, but the electricity bill in the winter is going to be $300. So I will make those mugs for you. But I mean, you know, we we said no to this three hundred and some thousand dollar project, and it opened up nine hundred other clients we wouldn't have had otherwise because I wouldn't have had time for them. And they're low maintenance, and they're easy, and it's a higher profit margin, and they like the things I make instead of wanting me to design something that's like a bastardized version of what I make. And to your point, like if one of them goes away, as the economy, as everyone's talking about the economy. Mm-hmm. No big deal. You'll be fine. Yeah. Whereas if that one $300,000 agreement goes away. Yep. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I appreciate you. And if uh, anybody wants to find me, I'm Gravesco on yes. Pinterest and on Instagram. I'm Gravesco Pottery on TikTok. I just got on there. That's a new thing for me. And Gravesco.com is the website. I was just going to ask that. Thank you so much. I'm going to link to all of the things in the show notes. And can we learn TikTok together? Because I technically have Maker's Playbook. But, like, I don't... I'm I'm an elder millennial, so apparently I'm at the stage now where new social media platforms confuse me. (laughs) Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out Twitter. Thankfully, I've waited that one out until it's not going to be a thing anymore. Yeah, no, we're not... (laughs) Yeah, TikTok is actually kind of fun. I'm working with a business coach on some stuff on there that will hopefully start to take off. Okay, so we hit an hour and a half nearly without even realizing it. And clearly, we could have just kept on going. There are so many nuggets of wisdom in this conversation. If you enjoyed this chat as much as I did, be sure to take a screenshot of the episode in your podcast app right now and share it on Instagram. Or if you have the energy to make a video for TikTok, that's amazing. Good job. Please be sure to tag me at The Maker's Playbook on Instagram or at Maker's Playbook on TikTok. Yes, it's different. It's annoying. I know. As well as tagging Rebecca at Graves Co. on both platforms, because that's the smart way to do it. Tag us both so we can be sure to send some big thank yous. Okay, so time traveling back now to the current end of 2023 for a quick friendly reminder on the stuff that is time sensitive. While I might not be recording new episodes right now, I can't say that I'm taking a complete break as much as I tried to make that happen. So if you do have any questions about our goal-setting kickstart inside of the community at the start of the year, you can absolutely send me a DM on Instagram at The Makers Playbook or email me hello at makers-playbook.com so we can clarify anything while those savvy lower membership rates are still available. The inboxes are a hard thing to completely shut down, but might just be a goal I figure out in 2024, and we can journey along together to see how I do. Once again, this episode was made possible in part thanks to Amico. Hello, I'm Bryce, Account Manager and Sales Solutions Supervisor at Amico Brett, providing you with the best customer service in ceramics. This episode is brought to you by Amico Brett. Find Amico glazes and equipment at your local distributor. Welcome to Clay, and thank you for listening. Audio post-production of this podcast is made possible by help from Christy Kotzfan, with promotional material assistance from Queenie Malachy. 
a Maker's Playbook podcast is recorded on the original homelands of the Potawatomi, Ochunk, and Menominee people. We're the people of Wisconsin sovereign Anishinaabe, Ochunk, Menominee, Oneida, and Mohican nations remain present. Until next time, my friends, go get back to making your dreams a reality. Because together, we've got this.